What I want to talk about tonight, and hopefully Jesse will adjust the volume a little, it sounds a little loud, um, are, are the basics of, of meditation, especially mindfulness meditation as we teach it here at Spirit Rock, why we do it, and what we do when we meditate. So pretty uh, simple in the basics. But I'm going to also be including some of the traditional teachings of the Buddha, um, some quotes from what we call the Pali Discourses. This is these um, many volumes of texts that have come down to us as the words of the Buddha. And I'm only going to be able to touch into some of those. So if anything seems a little obscure, hopefully the context will be enough. Um, but I'm, I always like to include that so that we get a sense of how the practices as we do them today are related to this lineage of the teachings of the Buddha that this is where it comes from. One of my teachers, Sayadaw Utejaniya, he's a Burmese meditation master, always says that meditation is the work of the mind. So even though we use these other aspects of our experience, really the experience of all six sense doors as the foundation of our meditation practice, so just like we did in the meditation this evening, using the body, using the breath, sounds. We can use sights and smells and tastes. But, um, so we use those direct experiences to kind of collect and center ourselves. But really what we're doing is training the mind. And any time we want to train or develop or understand something, we really have to um, observe it. That's the how this process happens. And so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how people, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago started observing the natural world to understand it. So the laws of physics and gravity, how the solar system worked, you know, figuring out, which I still find amazing, you know, this, the, how the sun the earth moves around the sun and all of the different planets and the movement of the stars by this patient observation, really opening up these huge fields of inquiry and discovery. And then, of course, once they developed microscopes to look at smaller and smaller things and telescopes to look at those celestial beings, it really started expanding our knowledge, our understanding of the world, and you can see how out of those explorations, all of what we know today developed, all of our technology, all of our medical advances, from this scientific inquiry and this um, steady and patient observation of direct experience, both in the inner and the outer world. Well, the Buddha performed the same kind of patient observation 2,600 years ago as he lived in India. But what he turned his attention to was the inner experience, was the mind and the body. And 2,600 years ago, minds and bodies weren't that different. You know, we might feel, oh, that's a long time ago. You know, it's so much more complicated now. Our minds are crazy. This is what the Buddha said about the mind back then. It's described as a, as a thicket and a tangle. He said it's fickle and unsteady, difficult to guard. And he likened it to as when a fish pulled out of water and cast on land throbs and quivers, even so is this mind agitated. So... 
I don't know if you can relate. I know I certainly can. And so he talked a lot about our our tendency of this mind to confusion and to restlessness, to wanting and aversion, to worry and regret, and those um, deeper aspects of, of worry and regret, of fear and shame. This is the mind that we're working with, was then and is now, full of these difficult experiences that really trouble us and limit our capacity to fully inhabit our lives and to to be uh, present because we're always in this state, I shouldn't say always, often in this state of conflict with these really difficult experiences. So there's this very famous text from the Majjhima Nikaya um, that kind of describes, as I said, this is the mind from 2,600 years ago, but... I think you'll relate. And it's about unwise attention, but this is what gets us into trouble when we take up certain themes or worries, as I said, fears and regrets, gets us into trouble. So this is from the text. This is how one attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? What shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else one is inwardly perplexed about the present. Thus, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? So again, the language is a little formulaic, but it's really talking to this sense that we can have of confusion, of worry, of fear, of regret. What did I do? What happened? Did I do it okay? Do people like me? You know, can I take care of myself? Where am I going? What's going to happen to me? This is what the mind does. And this mind, as I said, is very similar to what the Buddha talked about 2,600 years ago. But really, this mind has been developing for tens of thousands of years, right? Maybe hundreds of thousands. If we look at our ancestors and how they came to survive uh, on this planet, it was through being fearful, basically, you could say. Uh, I like to read about evolution and how human beings develop because I think it really informs us today. You know, we're not that different. We can feel those roots in us of our early ancestors. And Rick Hansen, who often teaches here, he's a psychiatrist who writes a lot on Buddhism and the brain, all the neuroscience, neuroresearch that's happening at the moment. I don't know if he made this up, but I I read it uh, in his book, wrote a a book called Buddha's Brain where he talks about carrots and sticks and carrots are good things Um, and he said for our ancestors they were things like food or getting to have sex or whatever it is you wanted but if you missed out on one of those events for a portion of a day well it didn't matter so much because you usually got another opportunity later that day or another day to get some food, maybe to have sex, whatever it is you were wanting to do. But the sticks are things like the predators coming to eat you. If you, if you missed out noticing that, you usually didn't get a second chance, right? And the way I put it is, you know, you imagine our forebears on the plains of Africa sitting around a campfire at night and the bushes started rustling and the ones who said, 
oh, don't pay any attention to that, let's just sit here and enjoy the fire, well, they're not our ancestors usually because whatever it was, you know, leapt out and ate them, right? We're the progeny of the ones that said, oh my God, let's run away, you know? So that's what we have as a mind. We're programmed to notice what's wrong or what's difficult or what's negative in our experience because that's what saved us in the past. As uh, Rick Hansen says, the ones that lived to pass on their genes paid a lot of attention to negative experiences. And the way he puts it is the mind is like Teflon for good experiences. They just go and we don't um, inhabit them, embody them. It's like Velcro for negative or difficult experiences, right? They stick and we ruminate on them. We kind of um, go around in them. You can, someone, you know, you can have 199 people say something nice to you, and one person says something slightly negative, difficult, some feedback. What do you remember at the end of the day? You know, we remember that difficulty. And so this is the mind that we're working with that has this tendency If we want to change that balance, we have to consciously pay attention because as the Buddha says, whatever the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So whatever it is that we chew on, stew about, dredge up and hold on to, that will become our habit, that will become our character. And so again, Rick Hansen says about this, To overcome negativity bias and instead make your brain like Velcro for the good stuff of daily life, take in the good in three simple steps. Let positive facts, so this first one, let positive facts become positive experiences. Let yourself feel good if you get something done, if someone is nice to you, or if you notice a good quality in yourself. Second, savor the positive experiences for 10 or 20 or even 30 seconds. Mightn't seem like very long, but we don't usually do that. We go on to the next thing. Savor it. Try to let it fill your body and be as intense as possible. And then third, intend and sense that the positive experience is soaking into you like water into a sponge becoming part of you. This is really good instruction. And it's actually derived from a very traditional teaching of the Buddha called the Four Wise Efforts. So I'm going to be mentioning a lot of teachings and only briefly, but just to give you a sense of how the Buddha encouraged us to work with and train the mind. In the Four Wise Efforts, we're asked to be aware of any difficult hindering experiences that have arisen in the mind and work with them skillfully and to avoid, to navigate, to know the conditions that bring those about and if we can, not not keep perpetuating those. And then on the positive side, we're asked to nurture and cultivate any positive experiences, beneficial, wholesome experiences that haven't yet arisen. And for the ones that have arisen, just like Rick says, to really inhabit them, to let them flourish, to to integrate them into our being. So this is a very traditional teaching of the Buddha. Why I wanted to mention it, it is it's the good news that it is possible 
to understand and to train and even befriend this wild and crazy mind of ours. This is the whole thrust of the Buddha's teachings, that by shifting our attention from our outer experience to observing and then understanding the mind itself, our direct experience itself, this is the turning point um, through this training of our of our mind and therefore our experience. And it was radical in the Buddha's time and it's somewhat radical today to get interested in the mind, not so much its content, though that can be relevant and sometimes instructive, but more the process, how the mind works, what it pays attention to, what it does with the things that it pays attention to, how we can actually learn to train and direct attention so it's more conducive to having experiences that are wholesome or for our well-being or to lead to contentment or happiness or peace or ease or equanimity or whatever it is we might want to notice. So it's this turning of attention that's so powerful. What we the Buddha recommended 2,600 years ago, what we do to this day in our meditation practice. And in that turning to the direct knowing of the mind, we, we observe it with this modicum of objectivity. Oh, this is what the mind is doing. Oh, the mind is like this right now. So in that observing, we're not so entangled, we're not so identified, we're not so caught. And we can start to name these experiences. Oh, this is fear or anger or resentment or worry or joy or love or contentment. And again, there's been lots of research done that talks about the power of this naming, that it allows us to do what Rick Hansen was talking about, what the Buddha talked about, of getting clear about what's happening and to have a little bit of perspective on the difficult experiences and actually learn to support and nourish and cultivate the ones that are for our well-being and the well-being of others. So this is a really important factor in our mindfulness training, this observing and understanding how the mind works. And when I'm saying the mind, it's this broad category of experiences that includes all of our thoughts, and thoughts can come as words or as voices or as images. It can come as kind of intuition or sensing, but it also includes all our moods and emotions. This is the the field of the mind, what we're turning our attention to. Where we get kind of challenged around this field of the mind is we take it to be true with a capital T. I'm feeling or thinking it, therefore it must be true. And we don't want to completely negate the validity of what we feel or think, but to learn to view it with a little more objectivity can only be for our benefit. We only have to look at fake news and the distortion of the media and all of these ads we're hearing were placed by Russian-backed agencies that really shaped people's minds. Some questioning could have been helpful in that whole process. But the Buddha said, don't just believe and certainly identify with everything you feel and think. Use this 
wisdom of mindfulness to actually not to we're not talking about pushing it away or rejecting it, but to begin to understand it. Um, because as I said, usually what we do is, especially around our emotions, think that they're inevitable, justified, inviolable. I'm feeling it, therefore that's what is happening and should be happening. And given this situation, anyone would feel the same way. Well, the Buddha begged to differ, and so does a lot of the research on how the mind works and emotions. A lot of interesting things happening in the brain research these days. Recently, I heard of a psychology professor called Lisa Feldman Barrett, who has written a book called How Emotions Are Made. And I found her her through um, a podcast called Invisibilia. It's an NPR podcast that talks about the hidden forces that shape us. So it has a lot of interesting stuff about the mind. And she, Lisa Feldman, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, uses findings from neuroscience, biology, and anthropology to show us a new way to conceive of emotions, literally how emotions are made. And what they said is the way emotion works is the opposite of what you think. Emotions aren't reactions to the world. Emotions actually construct the world. And she talks about a process called interoception, which is the system that communicates to the brain what's going on in the body. Interoception keeps these messages simple. All it communicates, Barrett explains, is pleasantness, unpleasantness, arousal, or calmness. More detailed information would overwhelm us. The concepts of emotions that we have learned, anger, sadness, joy, love, and so on, are how we explain those very simple messages to ourselves. And what's interesting about her research is people will interpret those messages differently. So she's... um, Uh, not no, rejecting is not the word, uh, what's the word where you disagreeing with? Um, some of the, the science that we've received about emotions that say, well, anger acts like this, and this is what an angry face looks like, or a sad face. You know, there are these studies of, uh, Paul Ekman has done a lot of really interesting research, but they've tried to like universalize emotions and how they express themselves. And Dr. Barrett is saying, no, from these very simple messages of the body that are reactions to our experience or to the outside world, we construct all of these different emotions and and really stories about what's happening. But they can be very different from person to person. So there's not one way that one would feel in a certain situation. This whole set of research, why I find this fascinating, is again it dovetails into some very traditional and powerful teachings of the Buddha. And the one that I'm particularly um, going to talk about tonight is a, a teaching or a, a, it's really a foundation of mindfulness called Vedana, is the Pali word, and we usually translate it as feeling tone. And this is the response It's said that we have to every sense experience that it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. 
It's a very simple kind of valence of what's happening to us at a sense door. So a sight or a sound, sensation in the body, even a thought or an emotion, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So you can see it really tracks. She talked about pleasant, unpleasant, calm. I would have that be uh, relating to the neutral one. And aroused is when something is strongly impacting us. What the Buddha said about this response of something being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and this is a very immediate response. It's not a. It's almost pre-verbal. We 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 have it um, as soon as the sense object is registering. It's said to arise with the contact at the sense door, so a sight or a sound. What happens though is if something's pleasant. And we have this registering that often isn't even conscious. What do we tend to do? That's a question for you. React. React with what, though? Grasping. Grasping, right? We want more of it. How do I get more of that? When something's unpleasant, what do we do? We don't want it. We push it away. We get the hell out of there. We... Do something else to avoid that experience. And when something is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, so not strongly registering, what do we tend to do? Ignore, go to sleep, space out, disconnect, or look for something to fill the void, right? So these, the Buddha said this is really important to recognize because unless we notice that simplicity or the directness of the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, we tend to get into trouble in one of these three ways we just spoke about. When we notice that pleasant, unpleasantness or neutrality, there's more of a choice point. This is the power of mindfulness. When we don't notice it, we're off to the races in the way our mind is traditionally, habitually trained to do. And again, there's a very traditional teaching on this from the Sanyutta Nikaya called the dart or sometimes the two darts or the two arrows. I'm going to read this again. It's, it's from the text, so it has a somewhat um, archaic tone to it because these texts were transmitted orally for about 500 years. So to do that, they used a lot of repetition and you could say boilerplate text to to kind of keep everything steady. Um, So when we hear it today, it can sound a little kind of archaic. But there's a power in this repetition because it goes in. So, And there's some words that are a little unusual. The, The Buddha is speaking to these practitioners, and he's talking about an uninstructed worldling. We are all basically uninstructed worldlings in that we haven't fully understood the Buddha's teachings. It's not a total pejorative. It's a little edge to it, but it's not a total pejorative. But it says, when an uninstructed worldling feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, oh, no, it's So it's stating that the uninstructed worldling feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, a neither pleasant nor painful feeling. That's just what happens. It's happening all the time. The instructed noble disciple, so that's someone who has heard the Buddha's teachings and has awakened to them, 
also feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. What's the difference? You're saying both whether you're awakened, free, liberated, or not, you still feel these three kinds of feelings. Buddha goes on to say, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, they sorrow, grieve, and lament. They weep, beating their breast, and become distraught. They feel two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose someone were to strike a person with a dart and they would strike them immediately afterwards with a second dart so that person would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So it is with the uninstructed worldling. So we have the initial contact, but then we have the secondary or the second arrow, which is all of the, oh, woe is me, this shouldn't be happening, this is not fair, I don't like it, it's someone else's fault or it's my fault or whatever it is that actually exacerbates the feeling. And then with this painful feeling, they harbor aversion towards it. Being contacted they, with a painful feeling, they seek delight in sensual pleasure because they do not know of any escape from painful feeling other, other than sensual pleasure. And it goes on to explain that the noble disciple, the instructed disciple, when they have the painful feeling, they feel it, but they don't grieve and lament and say, woe is me and this shouldn't be happening. They just feel the one feeling. That's the difference. And so it kind of outlines what 2,600 years ago was happening in the mind and what we do today. When something difficult happens, we get all caught up in it. We make a big problem about it. We uh, blame someone, blame ourselves. You know, again, the archaic language of weeping and beating our breast, but you, you kind of know what I mean, right? And the, the interesting thing that the Buddha says we tend to do is if we have something difficult that happens, our only response or the only way we know to get away from that is to seek a pleasant feeling to replace it. This is really very important to understand. It's the source of all advertising. You know, your life won't be perfect unless you get this laundry detergent or, you know, air freshener or new car or whatever it is. You know, they set up these scenarios where, uh, actually, what's the classic one of the infomercials, you know, where someone's trying to clean the bathroom and they're sweaty and nothing's working and the windows are smearing or whatever it is and then the new gadget comes in and the sun comes out and rainbows come out and everything's perfect in their life because they've got the Ouija or whatever it is that they're trying to sell. This is what advertising bases its, its marketing on. And, you know, what I've heard recently actually is that the makers of all our little devices that we keep in our pro- pockets have actually constructed them to fulfill this, if you have a moment of restlessness, a moment of boredom, there it is, right? To replace that with something funny, tantalizing, ridiculous, you know, to buy, whatever it might be. 
this is what the mind does. It doesn't like to be in this, un, uh, even a modicum of unpleasantness, let alone anything that's more difficult. And so we turn to that. We turn to food, to, to drugs, to coffee, to whatever it is to replace this unpleasant feeling. Once we get on that trajectory, it's like a treadmill, right? It just keeps going and we keep perpetuating. We kind of lost in this cycle of trying to always replace these unpleasant feelings. Now, what the Buddha said about life is there's dukkha. You may have heard of this term. It's usually translated as suffering, but it actually means this wide range of experiences from the subtlest kind of discontent and dis-ease to grief and pain and sorrow and lamentation. The Buddha said, this is the nature of experience. We are going to have dukkha. If every time we have this experience of unpleasantness, we're going to run away from it or run towards pleasantness, we are going to be constantly running, always not at ease, always with dis-ease because of that tendency. So this training that I keep talking about of turning our attention is to know these experiences directly so we're not so beguiled by them, not so lost in the story that they've told us about there's something out there that's going to make it better. Something out there that if only you'd got all your ducks in a row, if only you'd bought the right outfit or the right book or the right, you know, self-help guide, you'd have it together. And the Buddha kept saying, no, you know, there will be difficulty. There's no question. But actually understanding that, as Sylvia Borstein would often say, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Meaning there will be difficulty. But if we understand the mind and how it works, and if we understand also how to cultivate the sense of well-being or contentment or peace or ease, the mind can actually come more and more into balance and to find a sense of freedom. So we start turning our attention to this direct experience, as I said, to observe how the mind works. One of the things that we can notice, even about this experience of Vedana, of this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is that it's conditioned. It's not that everyone feels the same way about the same thing. I was recently very clearly made aware of this. I'm just back from teaching um, a six-week retreat. That, uh, that It's actually part of a three-month retreat um, some students and some of the teachers just teach the first, we call it the first half, so six weeks. It's quite a long extended practice period. Big meditation hall like this, 100 people meditating in Massachusetts. And I'd be sitting there like this. I'd always be too warm, have a T-shirt or something on. And I'd see people out there with sweaters and shawls and hats, And obviously the temperature wasn't that different where I was sitting and where they were sitting, but whatever the objective temperature was, they were having a very different experience of it being pleasant or unpleasant or even neutral. So, you know, we can see just very simple examples like that. You only have to look at music or food or art to see that we can look at the same thing, taste the same thing, experience the same thing. 
objectively have that experience, but our subject experience is incredibly different, can relate to it very differently. Why this is important is, as I said before, so we don't take our direct experience as the truth with a capital T. We get this little bit of space around it so we can start to understand what's happening and how we're relating to it. And then if we can continue to do that, of observing the mind without judgment. So in all of this, it's not like good and bad, right or wrong. It's just, oh, I see the mind latches onto this or pushes away that. We can begin to have a different relationship to these experiences. We're not so bent out of shape by them, not so pushed and pulled by them. It gives us a perspective on what's happening, a little bit of space around what's happening, a little bit of a choice point. This is the power of mindfulness. It kind of widens this experience we're having of of the now, and we get to see it more clearly instead of always tumbling forward and being lost and caught and identified with it, not knowing what's happening. Uh, I was just looking at the New York Times today, usually read a little bit in it, and there was an opinion piece by this guy, Robert Wright, who's just written a book called Why Buddhism is True. And it's on the science and philosophy of meditation and enlightenment. I haven't read the book. I read a review of it. Um, But I thought what he had to say in this opinion piece was uh, pertinent to what I was going to talk about tonight. This is what he said. Suppose that via mindfulness meditation, you observe a feeling like anxiety or anger, and rather than let it draw you into a whole train of anxious or angry thoughts, you let it pass away. Though you experience the feeling, and in a sense experience it more fully than usual, you experience it with non-attachment and so evade its grip. And now you see the thoughts that accompanied it in a new light. They no longer seem like trustworthy emanations from some I, some solid self, but rather transient notions accompanying transient feelings. Note how, in addition to being therapeutic, this clarifies your view of the world. After all, the anxious or angry trains of thought you avoid probably aren't objectively true. They probably involve either imagining things that haven't happened or making subjective judgments about things that have. In other words, these thoughts are just stories the brain spews out. They are often manifestly misleading, and abandoning them will tend to leave us closer to clarity than embracing them would. So I thought that was a pretty good description about the power of having this little bit of space or perspective to give us more clarity, more understanding. And so this is the work of meditation, to enable us to have that steadiness of mind so we can do this. The mind is a pretty wild place, right? You've if you've sat down for a moment and tried to watch your mind, right? It's like one thought after another going hither and yon, past and future. It's an endless display of restlessness and distraction. So we use these, um, as I said before, the the, um, 
awareness of the body, that really helps us to ground us. We use the breath to calm so that we can turn to what's uh, the other That's the first foundation of mindfulness, the body. So we can turn to the other foundations of mindfulness, which are the ones about the mind, and turning to pay attention to the mind. Vedana is the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feeling tone, and the other two are mindfulness of mind and a complex set of teachings called dhammas. But to do this practice, we have to give the mind something to do, as I said in our meditation instructions earlier. Because if you don't give the mind something to do, it'll go on its usual channels, right? It'll just wander into fantasy and daydreams and regrets and worries and planning and uh, all of the urgencies of whatever's going on for you. So we give the mind something to do. People have been doing this in meditation and beyond meditation you know, for thousands of years. When you really think of it, what people do when they cultivate an artistic um, activity, a hobby, crafts, even sports, even um, exercise out in nature, is giving the mind something to do. It's like they say about fishing. Most people go fishing not to catch a fish, but to have that experience of presence, right? Of being fully engaged in whatever activity it is. Sometimes sports people will call it being in the zone and it's a a powerful bringing together of mind and body. The whole creative process kind of evokes that, why people love to do things like that. All of the hobbies, the crafts that you might undertake. Most of the time, I think it's not so that you can have a mat made out of corks in your kitchen or, you know, you just have to look on Pinterest to look at Pinterest fails of, you know, all of the things people have tried to create. It's not the object that's really the end result. It's this act of of creativity and the bringing together of mind and body in a pursuit that really engages you. Well, this is what we do in mindfulness. But we have to shift how we're relating to the mind. Um, We have to start preferring simplicity to complexity and stillness to distraction. This is not what our culture has led us to want to do, right? We are a restless culture that's been primed to distraction primed to following every thought or inclination that we might have to try and get something uh, better. But again, I I really um, find this research that's happening now valuable because it's just affirming what the Buddha said 2,600 years ago. There's a whole um, research project where the title is A wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And we often think, oh, if I could just sit around and daydream, just go, you know, la, la, la in my thoughts, that would be happiness. This research actually says no. It says, in conclusion, the human mind is a wandering mind, and a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. It's kind of sad, actually, that the things that we think will bring us pleasure or happiness, when they actually do research on asking people, are you happy then? They found that no, most of the time they weren't. And so this might explain one that really um, confused me. You may have heard this research came out, I've 
got this a year or so ago. The title is, People Prefer Electric Shocks to Time Alone with Their Thoughts. Did you hear about that? It says, I'll just kind of gloss it here. Many people say they crave a moment of solitude, but a startling new study finds that people don't really enjoy spending even 10 minutes alone with their thoughts. I was surprised that people find them such bad company, the professor said. It seems that the average person doesn't seem capable of generating a sufficiently interesting train of thought to prevent them from being miserable with themselves. So they tried these studies where people had to sit from 6 to 15 minutes just by themselves. So you could describe this as what you do in meditation. They weren't allowed to fall asleep or to check their cell phones or to read. Overall, people rated this not very enjoyable five on a scale of zero to nine. I don't know what you felt about the meditation tonight, but we were trying to give you something to do. So they, they, they tried to change it up. They allowed them different things, but it didn't matter. They still weren't that happy. So if people found it so unpleasant to be alone with their thoughts, what lengths might they go in order to escape themselves? They started exposing volunteers to positive negative stimuli, beautiful photographs, and mildly painful electric shocks. They asked people how much they would pay to avoid the shock experience if they had five minutes, five dollars to spend. Then the researchers told 55 participants to sit in a room and think for 15 minutes. If they wanted, they also had the option to shock themselves by pressing a button, feeling a jolt resembling a severe static shock on their ankle. I have to tell you, there was a lot of debate. Why are we doing this? No one is going to shock themselves, they said. To their surprise, of the 42 people who said they would pay to avoid the shock, two-thirds of the men chose to shock themselves, and a quarter of the women did. I'm just reading what it says. One person, that won't guess who, pressed the button 190 times. And this is in 15 minutes. The researchers were stunned. Wilson wants to study the phenomenon further. He wonders whether people who regularly meditate will experience, have the experience differently. Study suggests steps could be taken to help people enjoy spending time alone. It's a little sad, isn't it, that this is what we've come to. But the Buddha said we can give the mind something to do that's healthy and wholesome and doesn't take any outside intervention. It's just this capacity to turn our attention inward. We do need to structure that, because if you're just told to do that with no instruction, most of us, again, the mind will run amok. It's not very enjoyable. But the capacity or the potential for using these simple instructions, breath and body, that's what begins to calm and center our experience. We start to kind of drop in more to this felt sense. From that simplicity of experience, the whole door to what the Buddha called wisdom or insight starts to open, where we start to understand how the mind works, how the world works, how we relate to the world. And he goes on to give a whole teaching called The Eightfold Path about how to 
develop this kind of wisdom, how to live in an ethical and, and skillful way within ourselves in relationship to others, and how to train the mind in a deep way, in a powerful way that leads to what the Buddha would call liberating insight, insight that really frees the mind and heart. We start with this simple practice that we teach here and did here tonight, just by paying attention. As Thich Nhat Hanh, who's this wonderful um, uh, Vietnamese meditation master, says, mindfulness is the miracle by which we master and restore ourselves. It is the miracle which can call back in a flash our dispersed mind and restore it to wholeness so that we can live each minute of life. Thus, mindfulness is at the same time a means and an end, the seed and the fruit. Mindfulness itself is the life of awareness. Mindfulness enables us to live. So from this simple act of of paying attention, of, of just sitting still, and knowing what's happening, this kind of doorway opens to a vast and deep and profound um, possibility of changing radically how we relate to the mind, to our bodies, and to our lives. So we do that by cultivating the formal practice of meditation, whether you do it on a daily basis um, for 15 minutes or half an hour or 45 minutes, do it a few times a week coming to classes like this. As I talked about the possibility of deepening on the longer retreats that we have here, all very profound and can be life-changing. But we can't just wait for those times. It has to be really all the time, this possibility of being in our lives in this way that really respects and honors and appreciates this life, this human body, and how it's experiencing the world, and understanding that it is possible to be happier, to be more kind, to be more compassionate, to have more equanimity. But it begins with this kind of training. That's the doorway. And we can do it informally, as I said, in our workplace, I wouldn't say bathroom breaks are great times just to recollect yourself, have a moment of peace and quiet. If you can go for a walk, be out in nature, look out a window. It only takes a moment of breathing and connecting to start to shift. All you need is a mind and a body. And presumably you have both of those. That's where it all starts. I want to end tonight, we'll take some time in a minute uh, for, for comments or questions, with a poem that I like called Hokusai Says uh, by the poet Roger Keyes. Hokusai is a, a Zen um, haiku poet and one of these um, great uh, authors of these pithy appreciations of direct experience. And it's all about mindfulness. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, 
repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength are life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And I like that for many reasons, but particularly because it talks about inhabiting this life, which we can only do if we're present for it, if we notice what's happening. In the inner world, as he says, the world is within us. We create the world. The Buddha says in this fathom-long body, there is the world. But how we relate to the outer world, too, with compassion and kindness, even though there's fear and anxiety. This is how we practice how we live. So we have some time before we end this evening if there's any questions or comments and any um, thoughts you might have of your own practice of how you live in this body, how you cultivate a relationship to positive experiences. What is it that invites that in you? How do you what have you learned about shifting your experience of when it's difficult or contracted. I don't want just any comments in general. Anyone? Anything to say? And I think we have microphones, which helps for the recording. There's one right here, hand-waving. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sally, hmm. for... Uh, I mean, a really a nice description of uh, the, the problem, which seems to be uh, one of the e- endless hunger mm. uh, and endless uh, dissatisfaction mm-hmm. with the very thing that you want and you get it, whether it's a new car or a new wife, <laughs> new girlfriend, and all those things. Uh, so it doesn't work. Mm. There's always uh, a new now, one to come. Maybe, you know, it's fine. You know, I'm not going to make a big thing out of it. It doesn't work. And I think it's fair to ask why. What is, what is missing from the equation? Mm. Uh, humans, uh, for the sake of being human, uh, are inevitably tied up with entities, the world. 
They are in the world. There's no getting away from that. So there's no spiritual answer in the fuzzy-wuzzy sense that I think. But let me just get right to the point. Um, I think that if you eat and you eat and you eat and you're still dissatisfied, then what is wrong with the experience that you are having when you're eating? Mm. Why isn't it as filling or as full as it might be? I didn't say as it should be, but as it might be. Mm -hmm. But I think as humans, we have the ability to feel deeply about the experiences of our lives, the simple ones like friendship and eating and a nice car. Uh, I have a very old car. I love cars. I could barely afford a new car. But I still love cars. Mm -hmm. So I'm never really unhappy about, oh, I don't have a prison. You know what I mean? It's the feeling for a very nice crafted machine. And I think the depth of that feeling, the, that, that seems to be missing from this equation. It's like we're only half there. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I think I've said this poem before. Uh, Wordsworth talks about the uh, world is too much with us. Mm. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. So that power is already ours. How did we abdicate? How mm. did we give it up? Yeah. It's and I think it's important to reclaim that. Mm -hmm. not, it's not a prescriptive thing. Mm -hmm. I think you simply have to fall back on something very large, not be embarrassed and not be intimidated. Very large, very original, very authentic, and very beautiful. Mm. Your being. Yeah. Come on, it's high time. <laughs> Come out of the little mouse hole and, uh, okay, I'm not, okay. not too much. <laughs> well, Thank you, Sally. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a, it's a, it is a conundrum, you know, why we've given away so much, always wanting the thing that we don't have, because as soon as we have something, it becomes the old and the familiar, and there's something new out there. Didn't the iPhone 10 come out today or yesterday, and... All of the people who lined up for the iPhone 6, you know, where is that now? Old hat. Um, and it, it is, it's just a tendency. But again, as I said, I think you can see it in our animal nature. You know, we had to survive. Hunting, gathering, you know, having that sense of um, needing to, to go and get the next meal. But today, when we just go to the, most of us are able to go to a refrigerator or whatever, we replace that. Um, those urges with these other things that, again, society is often telling us is what we should want to get. But it's, it's an endless, endless... Um, if there's always something out there, you know, that's the, that's, that's the very problem. And as, again, as the Buddha said, sit still and pay attention and realize everything you need can be right here in the enjoying of the moment, in the presence with the eating or the seeing or the hearing. Um, and it's a powerful teaching of stopping rather than going and getting. And, you know, truly simplicity that most, the people who are the happiest are the ones that are able to let go and um, be content with what they have, as you say, rather than looking to have more. It's not the message that we get, though. 
So it requi- that's why this is not an easy practice. It doesn't just come, oh, you sit down and meditate and everything will be hunky-dory. These minds are deeply conditioned and very good at doing what they do, which is filling us with these ideas about how to, how to get happiness. And so it takes a, it's a radical shift, as I said, to, to change that. Not easy. Yeah, any other thoughts or comments, practices? Yeah, there's a gentleman here at the front. Put your hand up again. Yeah, just right there. Thanks, Sally. Um, I'm wondering, there are a variety of kinds of meditation. And I know people who've been meditating for a long time haven't, haven't achieved the results that they were aiming for. I know for myself, I've been meditating for a long time and it's been wonderful along certain lines, but other aspects I feel like are um, undeveloped. Do you or do other teachers here have the um, the practice of of prescribing meditation or of of choosing or recommending different types of meditation for different people who have um, different aims or needs or uh, strengths and weaknesses that they are working on? So certainly, you know, over time, as a teacher would get to know a student, and especially in the retreat form, that's, you know, where that kind of familiarity can grow, we certainly do tailor meditation instructions and techniques. There are some very basic ones that we teach, and so it's it's variations of them rather than radically different practices. But as I said, the Buddha... Um, in the teachings that came down to us, there's 20 volumes or more, and you could see most of them as instructions. So there's a lot to work with. Um, But I think the the bigger question is, you know, the efficacy. And of course, people are going to have different experiences. Again, I I think this was from research. I found a research tonight, but uh, there was something a while ago about the 10,000 hours it takes to become good at something. That's a lot of hours. And especially if someone is just sitting for 20 minutes a day, I don't know what that would take to get 10,000 hours, but that's, that's a, at least a lifetime. Um, so there's also that, you know, meditation can have a profound effect quite immediately, but to fully realize it, its potential it's a lifetime, and in the Buddha's understanding, a many lifetime often uh, process. So, you know, both are true that it can be immediately um, eye opening, mind opening, life changing, and therefore people practice and develop in that way to, to keep nourishing that. And, you know, it does take 
can take time to find your, your groove, as it were, to find what works. And it's, for me, a big part of it is, is continuing to explore and deepen so there's a newness to practice. So it's not just doing the same thing over and over again and expecting to get a different result, but actually deepening the exploration. So, you know, that can mean different things to different people. Yeah. So that's a somewhat complex question. I don't know if, I hope that helps a little bit to answer it. Okay, we should come to an end now. Our time is up. I usually like to end just with a, a moment of, we call it dedication of merit, which is just acknowledging the, the value of coming to somewhere like Spirit Rock on your Monday evening of all the things you could have done. Um, your intention was to meditate, to, to calm and steady your attention and to open the heart to be a little more kind, a little more compassionate towards yourself, hopefully, and then extending that out to others. So there's a great benefit to this. Might not experience it directly or immediately in some profound way, but know that it represents something. It's something that's a powerful stream that you've entered into that I hope continues to support you. So may our practice in coming here tonight, in meditating and hearing the Dhamma, be of benefit for ourselves, bring us joy and well-being, support those we come in contact with, our friends, our family, our loved ones, work colleagues, people we meet. And may our practice and the merit that is developed from our practice also support the well-being and the happiness of all beings everywhere. May all beings come to the end of suffering. May all beings know happiness, peace, and ease. So thank you for coming tonight, for your attention, for listening to the Dhamma. Again, there's information out there. I'm up here. I can stay here for a few minutes if you have any questions or comments about this practice, what to do next, and hopefully you'll be back next week. See you soon.